But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 21 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Dr. Robert O'Connor, who's the head of research at the Irish Cancer Society. In today's show, we chat a lot about what the Irish Cancer Society is, the type of research they fund, and Rob's role as the head of research. And we also chat a lot about some of the common cancer myths and how to improve the communication of, of actually evidence-based recommendations. You know, so one of the things we talk about is is the fear-mongering that goes on in terms of behavior X or diet X causes cancer. And it's not necessarily the case. It's a lot more complex and multifaceted than that. And we really just dive into how to go about debunking some of those myths and how the lay person can look for reputable information. So it was a really great chat for me and it was it was really cool of Rob to sit down and take time. I was very busy scheduled to talk about some of these aspects. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. We'll catch you at the end of the show. So listen, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, <laughs> as a head of research of the Irish Cancer Society, I'm sure you're a busy man. So taking the time to chat to us is, is much appreciated. So um, let's just start with, you know, who you are and what you do is in your role as the head of research of of the Irish Cancer Society. Sure, Karen, and, and thanks very much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Um, my just by way of background, I'm a primarily laboratory and translational researcher. So what that means is that I, I cut my teeth um, doing the sort of basic lab-based research and then trying to translate that over. Um, with things like clinical trials and getting samples and data from patients to try and make it more um, realistic. I joined the Cancer Society uh, back at the start of 2015, so um, about two and a half years in. And my role is with my team, at, and it's a small team here, to uh, try and, uh, I suppose, work out the strategy for the research investment of the Cancer Society. We're the largest and oldest cancer charity in Ireland and research, research is a significant part of our remit as we, we try to overcome and, and stop cancer. So we, we help guide that uh, strategy. Um, we oversee and provide uh, financial support to researchers. Um, so at the minute, our investments would see us supporting the research of nearly 120 um, different researchers uh, all across Ireland, uh, all in the top universities and, uh, and hospitals in, in different aspects of cancer research. Uh, communication, I think, is a growing aspect of uh, our remit here as well, um, making sure that our own communications are accurate and timely, uh, and also that we, we help the public with their understanding of, of cancer and that. And we do a little bit uh, with researcher training, um, particularly around areas like cancer and cancer communications uh, and mental health aspects. Um, a lot of our researchers will be in a very pressured environment. We've recently started an initiative there. And I suppose in terms of cancer communications, it's very easy for people who've spent all the time in the labs to have a very singular view of, of cancer. Um, from their own experience, and we're very keen that they recognize the broader perspective, including that of patients, in, in, in the collection of problems that cancer represents. We see four areas of intervention. Um, I suppose we know that, um, broadly speaking, roughly four in ten 
cases of cancer are preventable or, or could be preventable by early uh, intervention of fairly simple lifestyle measures, uh, not smoking, being careful in the sun, vaccination, things like that. Um, there's a lot can be done in terms of early detection. We know that the majority of cancers are uh, tr curable, uh, certainly not just treatable, uh, if caught uh, early and uh, screening in particular and, and awareness of signs and symptoms can be very important. Um, treatment and diagnostics are very important. I suppose they're kind of the sexy part um, to kind of cut through the, 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 the language of the thing that a lot of people talk about. Um, and they do get a lot of uh, a lot of money and resource, and and there really have been some exciting developments over the past few decades in these areas. And then finally, uh, survivorship. And in our case, um, survivorship takes us right to the journey from from people who have been cured and will nonetheless have uh, health issues right through to to palliative um, research. So we divide into those four areas. Um, we have a relatively small budget with which to make interventions in those. Annually, our budget is between three and three and a half million euro. And because we're a, a public funded charity and we don't get support for our research from the state, uh, that, that money is dependent on the income that we get from fundraising and the amazing people around Ireland that, that support us. So we divide into those four areas and I guess we try and then identify um, the best of projects um, and also try and foster um, younger researchers and, and key researchers where we need particular competencies and that in the country. Um, so we do that through uh, research calls and uh, those calls are externally reviewed. So we get international experts rather than my opinion as to whether Kieran's new project is the best thing since sliced bread. Um, we, get, um, we, we, get, uh, we put out calls that are open and transparent and then we get outside uh, experts in particular fields then um, to make the assessment as to uh, what people or what projects we should invest in. Kind of touching on what you were saying there, it really, the uh, the treatment and the pharmacology really is kind of the sexy the sexy approach, but it's like everything we talk about, the, it's often the unsexy things that work the best. And as you said, in terms of prevention, lifestyle factors by and far, you know, are, are there's so many modifiable lifestyle factors that can improve uh, or reduce your risk of, of cancer incidence. So, you know, for me, and I suppose you might be in the same boat, I I have a hard time seeing, you know, after going into this field, if the awareness of risk factors has in, increased among the general public or is it just that I'm more involved in the field and I'm more aware of them? You know, what do you, what is your perspective on that and how do you think, you know, social media and the internet plays a role in, in kind of miscommunication of risk factors, I suppose? I think there's been a, a big increase in awareness around cancer uh, risk factors. Our own charity and other charities, both uh, local here in Ireland and internationally, have played a major uh, role in that. It's it's probably actually an area where, where government and state hasn't been as active as it, as it might be. So there's, there's certainly a lot more uh, awareness. Um, the challenge, I think, is the accuracy of that awareness. And the message um, is uncoordinated sometimes and, and, and quite jumbled. And it's also impacted by uh, the beliefs of certain individuals or organizations, certain vested interests. Um, and just misconceptions. Um, when I was younger, um, cancer was a disease that wasn't really spoken about, and it was something that engendered significant fear. I, I watched um, several of my relatives pass away in, in uh, quite difficult circumstances when I was a child and a, and a teenager. Um, it wasn't spoken about what their illness was and, uh, and so on. Uh, so I think much of that fear still remains in our population. Um, there are difficulties in the communications that we have to have around cancer and around cancer prevention because they impinge upon our lives and they impinge upon things that we might like to do or might not, not like to do. So for example, things like the foods that we might like to eat, whether we smoke, whether we drink, those kinds of things. And I do also feel that part of the challenge is the types of communication. We've tended to come at these um, from a kind of a negative um, paternalistic type of way and we you know we've tended to highlight the significant hazards and harms by things like smoking um, and you know obesity and so on 
rather than, uh, and I think there is a move in this direction to uh, talk about the more positive aspects. So the fact that if you don't smoke, um, you've got more energy uh, and so on. And we've also failed to link in with the other illnesses. And we've recently had a project started out here where we've linked in with folks in diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, and uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, because while we talk about cancer and, and disease prevent, cancer prevention, many of the elements of that are common to the other uh, illnesses. Um, so people think, for example, in terms of smoking, they think, uh, oh, you know, I get lung cancer. Um, actually, only about one in 10 smokers get lung cancer. It's more common for them to get uh, other diseases or have those diseases at the same time as the various forms of cancer that they might be at risk from. So things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they're more at risk from cardiovascular, heart attacks, strokes, etc. So all of these things come together and, and I suppose we're just adapting to that. There hasn't been sufficient resourcing of it um, because there aren't um, major gains to be made for you know a particular company in saying, uh, you know, go in this particular direction. And as I said, I do think some people have started to exploit that vacuum with their own beliefs and selling their own quack and sham um, diets or approaches or, or, or whatever. So you have a complex interplay there, complex psychology, you fear at the back of it. And um, we know how prevalent these things are. We're, we're all afraid. A misunderstanding of cancer being multiple different diseases, um, economic aspects, all of those things come together to make it very complex. I like the, the kind of integrative approach you spoke about there where we're not just saying, uh these these factors can increase the risk of cancer. It can increase the risk of of a whole host of chronic diseases. Uh, but you kind of alluded to this idea of scare tactics as well, which I think is is a is an area of frustration for me when you you see these people online, wellness bloggers, or even informational pieces that say you know it's just it's it's aggressive and it's fear mongering. I'm sure you saw the what the health documentary as well about. Um, Red meat causes cancer, so you can never eat steak again, you know, or you can't go and enjoy a hot dog at, at a football game. You know, it's it's this, um, there's a misalignment in what we know in terms of the actual risk, and I think people get paralyzed that, by that fear, and they're afraid to live their life. So what kind of, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I agree with you that certainly some people uh, can be, and, and again, there's a, there's a couple of reasons behind it. Um, there's a, a difficulty in the average person uh, understanding risk. Risk is all around us. Simply living and existing uh, is, is taking a risk. It's like our, you know, our, our perception of the risk of sharks versus bees and, and you know, uh, the fact that vastly more people will be killed by bees and wasp things um, than will be by sharks. But, but yet we have a, a, an innate fear of, of sharks and, and that comes across into, uh, into disease areas and that as well. There's no question that there are people out there manipulating and there it can be difficult to find an evidence based voice that people can trust through the melee of all of the different things they will see in the newspapers. Uh, and I know this show goes out internationally um, certainly in, in the media in the British Isles and in the US, I would have certainly seen very contradictory and, and very easily miscommunicated um, views expressed in the national media newspapers around uh, things like meat um, or, or you know certain kinds of diets uh, all of those kinds of things vitamin supplements etc etc uh, and it's very very difficult for the average person to try and make sense for themselves and, and frankly I fear many people uh, actually move away then in that situation and they either become um, vulnerable to uh, the manipulation of, of certain quacks and that online with social media and so on or they simply pull away altogether and, and go off and just do um, what, what, what it ever is that they, they, you know, they want to do. So there's a difficulty in getting a clear uh, message across and one that um, is uh, you know, appropriate, etc. And even when you try and do that, there are people that will come in and will try and undermine that. You know, we have messaging around things like diet and, and so on um, pertaining to cancer. Um, but yet, um, unqualified individuals um, have in the past come in and, you know, uh, using their own platforms, try to undermine those evidence-based messages. So there, there is a challenge there for the average person uh, in the media, the average person taking in media 
to make sense of it all and turn it into something that guides their life. And at the end of the day, life is a series of choices. And for example, people can choose to smoke or not smoke. I have no difficulty with somebody smoking and that is a choice they make. And if they make that on the, uh, with full knowledge of the consequences for that, that's fine in the same way that somebody may decide to walk a tightrope across the Grand Canyon or, or, or something else. However, it is, it, I'm duty bound to explain to people to help them understand and, and weigh up those risks for their life. Uh, and I think it would be negligent of me and other professionals if we didn't um, communicate and try and help our society attain the, the best of health that it has. And we forget about sometimes all the successes that we've had. So at the turn of the 1900s, um, the uh, longevity, the lifespan of the average person in the British Isles and the US was roughly similar. Someone could expect to live to roughly um, their, their early 40s. Um, now in the uh, 21st century, uh, certainly in, in the UK and Ireland, um, the average person can live, can expect to live into their early 80s. Um, it's a little bit uh, further behind in, in the US for various reasons. And that brings on a number of challenges, particularly with chronic diseases like cancer, which are much more common as people get older. So again, trying to communicate the aspects of things like risk, the fact that because you get older, no matter how healthy or no matter how good you are, um, you are more likely to come down with uh, a, a chronic condition, uh, a more serious condition like cancer or diabetes or heart uh, disease because of your genetics and because you're living longer but that you can impact the risk of that. You can't guarantee, but you can impact the risk of that um, in many cases by positive lifestyle behaviors. You're right. There's so much positive things that have happened in the area of cancer, particularly with the way we screen for cancers, the way we treat cancers, the way even just the increase in survival rate in a lot of cancers. It's no longer, as you said, you know, back 30, 40, 50 years ago, the risk of mortality directly from cancer or its treatment was a lot higher. And it's it you know it's not the case anymore you catch breast cancer in stage one and it's a pretty high chance of survival and so i think you you do a really good job of kind of coming at this fairly unbiased and saying you choose these lifestyle factors these are the risks associated and it's it having that kind of approach i think makes people more amenable to the information you're giving out as opposed to being aggressive and fear-mongering and that type of approach um so you know, obviously you spoke a lot about the challenges with, with media and, and social media in particular. What what role do you think we have as scientists in being on social media and how, you know, obviously it's, it's a mess. If you get the average person, we spoke about this on Twitter a while ago, you get the average person going onto Instagram and scrolling through accounts and they've got 20 different perspectives on how to eat. And they just don't have the information or the resources to be able to dig through that. So what, what is their role and how do, we, how do we work towards improving the way this is communicated? I, I think there's a few ways. Um, and to be fair, that isn't just a, a problem amongst the general public. It's a problem amongst uh, many of those involved in research. And, and science is a vast field with a, a vast number of people playing different roles. And sometimes people think that they may be experts in a certain area because you know they've read a research paper uh, or whatever, um, but actually they, they don't know the evidence around the whole um, sort of area. So there's a few different uh, elements from that that I think it beholds us. One, we do need to be out in media where we're members of the general population, as scientists, as, as doctors, nurses, whatever the, uh, the research background. So we have every bit as right to be out there and speaking as any other member of the public, with, with respect to every member of the public, um, because we are uh, members of the public. Um, so we should be out there, we should be using our skills um, to um, talk and discuss these things in a friendly and open manner. We should be uh, friendly, challenging people who um, make certain claims, and if those claims stack up or whatever, we should support them. We need to communicate effectively amongst ourselves and, and learn better how to communicate. I think many um, health experts have been reasonably late into uh, the arena of social media and the importance of communications. And that's partly because of the, the way that um, the academic environment works. So uh, as an academic expert, you build up your expertise and your career reward is within your academic environment. So it's publications, 
um, it's research grants, uh, it's educating um, students. All of those things would be measures by which your success would be viewed. Social media engagement and larger uh, engagement of, of, of the public isn't a major metric for most uh, academic institutions or, or, or research institutions, or certainly hasn't been. Um, so uh, we need, I guess, to change that. And, and universities um, represent the society which, which funds them and supports them. So I think we need to grow the, the communications um, role for, for higher education, research uh, and academic enterprise. We need to be quite careful how we do it because it's very easy for me as Dr. So-and-so to make a, a claim that I've found the cure for cancer. Um, but actually the public are now starting to get quite lethargic and, and wary of all of the, the claims uh, that they've seen. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the reality is anybody who's worth their salt knows that cancer is a collection of different diseases, so there will never be a single cure. Um, but also they know that things are built up cumulatively, that the advances that we have made in outcome for people have not been eureka moments. They've not been around, you know, a single drug or, you know, a pivotal thing. They've been built up by slow, steady building in the same way that the, the pyramid didn't just appear in Egypt um, overnight. It was built up by planning, by decades of, you know, experimentation, structural engineering and people coming together as a community. So there's, there's a, a need for us to communicate and work as a, as a kind of a collective and agree that, you know, we're not going to use the um, the, the, the kind of um, clickbait uh, type social media things of, you know, look, I found the cure for cancer or I found this particular um, substance is, is good for you or bad for you or whatever, that we need to, I suppose, communicate these things through professional bodies and in agreed manners um, so that clear uh, communication strategy evolves that, that makes it easier for the population to understand what we're saying. We as as academics are are tend to be a little bit more rigid and and uh, dry, and I think if we're if we're going on social media and and delivering this information, I think it's got to be in a way that the the audience we're targeting can consume. So when we're talking to general public, you know, it's got to be enough where where we're educating them, but also it's got to be lay the language has got to be lay language to where they can understand what we're talking about and it's interesting to read you know especially when you look at the way people consume social media now it's a it's a six second video you know anything over over three minutes isn't going to get a look and and you know a blog over a couple of paragraphs people are going to scroll through so even the way we deliver the information i think is changing too oh yeah, i fully agree with you and there's a, a skill and an art in that, as there are in all aspects of, of, of uh, communications. Uh, and this is a, an evolving phenomenon as well. And I suppose we see it in other aspects of how communications around things like vaccination and so on, where uh, others have, have recognized um, what, what communicates effectively in that medium. And um, health and health professionals have been quite late to the table in, in recognizing those things. I, but I do think things are changing. I follow a number of, of people on social media who clearly have those skills and those talents for condensing things down, for saying them in a manner um, that, that is easy to understand. We are impeded, though, by a couple of things when we try and communicate about health. Uh, the language of science um, is different to the general language that the, the average person uses on the street. It tends to talk about evidence uh, and, and, you know, the evidence for, the evidence against or whatever, where you and I, if we were talking, uh, you know, socially or whatever, we would say it is or it isn't. And, yeah. and that, 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 that can be a challenge. Um, so it, it leaves an element of vagueness. And again, unfortunately, there are people that can come in and say, uh, you know, use different terms of phrase that make it sound like they have the next treatment for leukemia or lung cancer or, or whatever. So we are impeded by some of our, our, our training in the language that we use. Um, and I think this is a very uh, dynamic um, and evolving area of health communications. And I see various courses emerging in, in different universities. And I think people are really starting to recognize um, that um, there are deficits here, that this is an important aspect. And that, you know, for example, it's all well and good um, having uh, a vaccine um, that prevents measles, mumps and rubella, which um, can be fatal diseases, horrific in children where, where you've seen them. And I've seen them firsthand. Um, but if and that's great to be able to develop a safe vaccine against those illnesses. 
But if you can't communicate that and if you can't bring the population on board with that, um, you're not going to be able to reap the benefits. And, and likewise, with some of the things we were speaking about with cancer prevention, we now know uh, many aspects uh, and, and you know things like numbers and that around um, the decisions we make in our lifestyle. But if we can't effectively and uh, consistently communicate those, and also if we don't have measures to curb the false claims made by people and legislation and regulation in these areas is wide, wide open and it allows a lot of people to make a lot of money um, across the world in these false claims. If we can't regulate those in the same way that, that other aspects of, of communication, things like finance, life insurance, etc., are regulated, um, research and science will always be on the back foot. With the, the exercise and diet industry, I mean, again, we, we kind of chatted about this a while ago, but the the barriers to entry into becoming an online fitness coach are almost non-existent. There's absolutely no regulation. There's nothing to say you can't take a topless picture and you have a decent body. And at the end of the day, that's what people consume. You know, when you think of yourself or myself, if if people are saying, well, what exercise helps reduce the risk of cancer and we say well you know we don't know it depends on a, a variety of things on, on where you're at in life any injuries you've got any comorbidities you know we'll work together versus joe blogs with a shirtless selfie says i have the program that's gonna you know what i mean it's it's people want the yes or no they don't want us to say well we don't know we'll, we'll kind of talk about it but that that's where regulation comes in and, and consumer protection acts and, and so on um you'll be aware that um we uh, joined with the Irish, um, within the, the, the professional body representing um, nutritionists and, diet, uh, and dietitians in Ireland. Um, and we recently um, called out someone who uh, was making false claims on media and, and in a book about uh, dietary approaches in cancer. But that's extremely rare in any country to see that happening. Yeah. And the challenge, the challenge is that this is where people need to be protected. If that person was claiming um, that they're going to quadruple um, the return on investment if you gave them money. So in other words, a Ponzi scheme. Um, they would be very quickly imprisoned um, for, for, you know, for, for doing that and, and for defrauding people. Unfortunately, when it comes to health, there are many out there who are um, defrauding individuals. They're defrauding them of their health and defrauding them of their wealth in you know, bringing them into certain types of approaches in, in lifestyle um, that are not evidence-based. And I think part of the challenge there is that um, there's a misunderstanding as to how science communicates and, and you know, research papers and, and other types of articles that are in science. And what I usually try and say to people is I explain it that a research paper is a postcard um, from a scientist. It's nothing more. I did something. I went away on my holidays. Here's a picture of what it looked like. That doesn't actually necessarily mean that, you know, if I went off to whatever country it might be, that actually that the whole country can be represented like that. And I, I use the analogy, when I was younger, um, I got a, a mental image of New York being quite a, a violent um, city and, you know, all kinds of gangs and, you know, nasty things and so on, not helped by some of the TV programs and films that I'd seen. But when I actually went to New York, I saw that it's a much more complex society. It's a fantastic, beautiful city, very cultured uh, and all of these other things. And this is the challenge with science, that we only get that picture when we bring all of those different postcards together and when people collectively weigh up the postcards and say, well, actually, I've got a postcard here of, you know, some sort of violence in, in, in New York. I might have a picture of violence in Dublin uh, or whatever. But actually, when I collect all of these different postcards, I get a much greater, more accurate picture of what things are like. Yes, there might be the odd bit of violence, but actually there's beautiful trees, there's parks, there's really friendly people. So the whole collective in any area is a reflection of all of these different pieces of information. And there are papers in various different journals of various, and some journals, much like uh, media, some can be sensationalist, some good quality, some are bad quality. So you can find some piece of information and in literature backing up almost any point that you might make about health or lifestyle or whatever. It doesn't mean that it's true. And communicating this is, is a weakness because people think if somebody is a doctor, they automatically are an expert in all aspects of health. And um, even if they aren't a doctor of, of, of medicine or, or health or science, 
Um, they may think that uh, anything that's published is uh, is true, and that absolutely is not the case. And we know that somewhere between a fifth and a third of all publications are either inaccurate or are fraudulent in nature. So weeding through all of that to find the accurate piece is actually a, a difficulty, and that's why professional bodies and groups of people come together, um, like the World Health Organization or the national bodies, to make decisions and come up with, with hard um, facts out of all this different evidence. I, I love that postcard analogy. I think that's that's one of the best ways I've heard an approach to scientific evidence explained. Because um, you're right, I mean, you'll get these questions and people say, well, what do you think about this study? Or this study proves, and it's that's never the case. And it takes years and it takes a lot of this evidence to build up before we slowly start to kind of go you know maybe there's something here and kind of along with that i think uh, it's interesting to see how people perceive our opinion on different subjects you know as as evidence accumulates we may have previously held a certain belief about how exercise diet or whatever it may works but then evidence accumulates to the contrary and we start to say well you know we, we're starting to see some new new evidence and we're starting to change our mind and they're saying well one minute you say this and the next minute you say this we can't believe you we can't trust you when in fact that's the the hallmark of of a true scientist is is the ability to be critical of new information but as it accumulates start to kind of see what's there and, and appreciate what's going on yeah and, re- and refine it more i think i think as as research advances in, in any area it's kind of like tuning the television in or whatever you know you get a you get a, an initial uh, sort of fuzzy picture and, and you get some information from that. You know, somebody has a red dress or whatever. But then as we do more research, we fine tune it a bit more. We can see other elements that are present in that picture. We might see, a, you know, an exciting scene. We might see a dangerous scene, whatever it might be. So it isn't, uh, it, it's almost never actually that that uh, research will kind of contradict itself in that manner. And um, what it is, is that there'll be more refinement and, and that the specification um, will become much more determined. So, you know, we're talking about a particular um, situation. To use the examples of exercise, um, cancer is a collection of lots of different diseases and impacts people at different ages. So uh, we could say that there's uh, massing evidence in, in certain cancers around the impact uh, of exercise uh, in, in improving overall outcome. And that doesn't mean that it necessarily exercise is the cure-all um, for all forms of cancer. It doesn't mean that it will prevent all forms of cancer. And I suppose it's, it's these nuances and, and these take time um, to communicate effectively. Um, and as human beings, we tend to want that little soundbite that you mentioned. We tend to want that small video um, and, and we want the reassurance from that. Um, so we're we're kind of programmed um, to to uh, you know to exist in that space. And uh, recently, uh, reading uh, nearly finished a book by um, a guy called uh, uh, the Angry Chef. It's is his online persona. People can can look him up under that. Um, uh, Anthony Warner is his name, but he, he he really articulates the difference in the kinds of mentality that we have. The two different brains, the the short snappy brain that's very very important for short-term survival, where we just want the key pieces of information. Are we going to be attacked by this big tiger or, or you know, should we should we um, sit down, should we run away or, you know, whatever it might be. And then the longer-term brain that makes bigger, broader decisions for our overall life and, and things about things like, you know, relationships, what do we enjoy, what do we don't enjoy. And, and human beings are programmed to use that, that first brain uh, and it is a very easy way to manipulate people and get them into a, a um, into a, a Ferrari over you know particular aspects, whether that be in health or whatever. So science needs to try and help people use the other part of their brain and explain more rationally to them the limitations of what it finds. And if people miscommunicate about that, it is very easy for people in the media to say, "Oh, scientists are at it again. They told us that." Um, red wine was good for us, now they're telling us it's bad for us, and there's somebody else telling us it's good for us again. And, and that kind of communication actually erodes overall confidence in our community when actually we know full well um, the facts pertaining to alcohol and wines and, and so on. <laughs> when you're talking about myths, it, it, the myths are generally extreme too. You know, it's it's this can dramatically increase your risk and you should never do it. And um, 
<laughs> one of the things you kind of said, you know, cancer and tumor biology is is really complex based on a variety of factors, and and there's the the conspiracy theorists that they have the cure for cancer and that we're holding it because we have uh, financial interest in it. And you take any sort of tumor microenvironment class, any sort of you know education on on cancer biology, and it's just so complex. We don't have the cure. You know, and it, it comes back to we're, we've been striving for the last 15 to 20 years on finding different treatments to target these different cancers. And, you know, that's one of the most frustrating areas for me. Um, what drives you up the wall in terms of myths related to either cancer prevention, treatment, survivorship? What, what just, you know, gets you going? Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I, I suppose, and, and I, I've spoken in public and I've, I've a few different articles out in, in, in the media around these things, and I, I've come across all of the things that you that you've said, and I've come across them for some some very uh, unusual uh, and unexpected sources as well. So these these myths can be ever um, ever pervasive. Um, I, I suppose the, the the first thing, and we've we've touched on it several times over the the um, course of this chat. Um, the first thing is that cancer isn't a single disease. And uh, for example, you and I might be sitting together in, in, a, in a treatment clinic. Um, I might have, um, you know, a particular skin cancer for sake of argument. We could, we could both be sitting there and both have skin cancer. One of us mightn't be there the following year from, from having um, succumbed to the cancer because we may have different cancers. There's lots of different kinds of skin cancer. Um, many of them are very, very treatable. Um, we may have them at different stages. The mutations that are in those cancers may be very different and, and distinct and, and lead one to um, reverting all on its own, while another one being very aggressive and not responding to any treatment. So part of the challenge, and, and I suppose it would be easier if our language distinguished better, if we didn't have this generic term for cancer and actually we spoke in, in more defined and, and specific ways as is done in medical and scientific literature. But we are where we are. Um, certainly, I've, I've uh, heard um, that claim uh, that you know the cure for cancer exists somewhere, usually in pharma or whatever. Um, and I used to argue um, with, with some of my students who would bring that to me um, that you know that 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 is ridiculous. Uh, and indeed, I, I know it to be the case because um, I, I've seen people in pharma companies. I've been involved in in clinical trial research, and I know the challenges and the difficulties uh, involved from. Um, accessing uh, and, and trying to have a selective effect on, on cancer cells. And what many people seem to forget is that cancer cells arise from normal cells. In every way, they are almost identical to normal cells. The main re difference that they have is that their growth is, is uncontrolled. So they're either growing in number or they're going into places that they shouldn't be going into. And it's that going into places, that invasion and metastasis, that's normally the fatal aspect of cancer. So um, explaining that to people um, and helping them understand is, is a big challenge. Um, so there will never be a single cure. Um, but the one thing that, that comes to mind about that cure is we have treatments for certain types, preventative treatments for certain types of cancer now through vaccination. You'll know from my, my online stuff that I do quite a bit on you know, things like HPV vaccination hepatitis B vaccination, etc. So pharma has actually generated some potential means to prevent these cancers. And probably within the next couple of decades, we, it seems that we'll recognize that maybe somewhere between one in maybe one in 10 uh, cases of cancer, maybe a bit more, maybe one in 20 are actually caused by viruses and so have the potential to be prevented through vaccinations of various kinds. So there, there are opportunities there where we will actually um, see cures and preventions for cancer. I suppose the, 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 the biggest myth though that I see is that cancer is disease of modern life. That is the toxicants around us, it's the environment, it's the food that we eat, um, it's the electricity around us, it's the mobile phones, uh, it's just modern life. And this is probably the most pervasive aspect that I see on, on social media and on the internet, which simply isn't true. And I, I go back to, to that, that statement I had, that factual statement earlier, about how our lifespan has increased dramatically. We have lived through, even in your and my short uh, period on this earth, we have lived through the most dramatic change in lifespan that human beings have ever had. Um, it, it, there's, there's no precedent for it at any stage in human evolution. 
the last kind of century or whatever. The, the impact of that is enormous. Cancer is a relatively rare disease. Um, and if you look at the, in most countries, um, before the age of 40 to 45, um, it is very rare. It's only after that um, that we see in, in a number of cancers really increasing very significantly in their rate. But there's a lot of fear propagated and we see various reports about, you know, this substance or that that might be found in our foodstuffs. We see people propagating myths about organic and, and you know, false claims about the uh, impact of that or the impact of having non-organic foods, etc. And I think to me, this is the most injurious um, and false of the claims that's out there that, you know, modern life is, is, is toxic or modern life is, you know, causing us harm. Yes, there are examples of that, um, but by and large, from a health perspective, we've never had it so good. We've never had such clean water, such high quality food, um, such clean air, um, such uh, ability to make positive use of our time, such great communications, etc. And if we recognize that, regulate it obviously where it needs to be regulated and make sure that you know we are careful about exposure to chemicals uh, and so on, but make sure that we recognize that and build on that. Otherwise, we run the risk of actually undermining and, and losing all of that progress that has been made. In a world now where there's so much kind of negativity and it's always the downside of everything, it's nice to hear just kind of a, it's not so bad. You know, we're, we're doing all right. We're, we're, we're improving. We're getting there. And we certainly have, we have it a lot better than we ever had before. I, I think there, I think there are challenges in that though, and, and I suppose what what concerns me is is um, research on lifespan and that. And recently, um, so so lifespan doesn't have a linear increase. So in other words, it, it, it can't keep going up and up and up. And um, we have a finite lifespan. All animals have. And recently, I've seen in in the US that actually the lifespan has started to stabilize and and, and actually regress. And that's probably a reflection that we haven't adapted to being able to make use of all of these advances. In particular, when it comes to foodstuffs, our, our, our bodies and our psychology haven't adapted to the fact that we have an abundance of food around us, that food is very cheap proportionately. And again, I think back to my childhood and how much of my parents' budget proportionately was spent on, on food for us as a family. Uh, and now how cheap um, proportionately and numerically it is to get in very high quality, high um, energy dense um, foods. And, and unfortunately, we aren't yet adapted to such a, a change over you know, one, maybe two um, decades. So while life is, is, is very good, we haven't yet adapted to been able to use that. Exercise is another example. Um, had we had the opportunity to be having this over whatever kind of wireless mechanism we might have had back in the 1900s, um, challenging and all of that might be, we would both have had to have been very active. We would have had to, in terms of our transport, um, it would have to have been physically active. We would have to do a lot of um, manual uh, activities um, in, in our households, etc. We would have been physically much more active and our, and our skeleton would have reflected both our activity um, and the, the difference and, and poverty of our nutrition at that stage. So there's a challenge with this goodness in that we haven't yet fully adapted to been able to integrate that in a healthy way in our lifestyle and, and build in things you know like we don't need to be eating energy dense foods all the time every day even though we're exposed to it in all the media and so on that we do need to now build in exercise into our routine into our day because it's so easy for me to get into a car or get on a bus or a train and go to my place of work and spend all that time sitting on my butt doing whatever it is I might be doing. So there, there are challenges for us with that. And really, if we want to continue progress in, in, in our lifespan, in, in increasing that, we're going to have to adapt our lifespan to take account for the fact that we are no longer hunter-gatherers. We no longer have to go out and, and kill for our food. We can simply pop down to the deli and get a, you know, a very nice sandwich or whatever we can drive down to the deli. We don't even need to walk to it. So we, we need to build those things in. We, you know, when I go home to, or even people ask me what it's like in, in Ireland, and um, I, I don't really think about my activity too much because, you know, at least, you know, when I was growing up, I'd, you'd walk to school, you walk around the shops for the most part. Um, 
portion sizes are, are inherently smaller in Ireland. <laughs> you know, remember when back when we had the super size in McDonald's? I mean, a super size meal in Ireland is is a medium in the States, you know, it's yeah, the portion yeah, yeah. size are unreal. And then, you know, here they have drive through banks, they have drive through liquor stores, they have drive through everything. And I live two miles away from the college campus and I walk and people look at me like I've six heads, you know, and uh, it's again, you, you kind of alluded to the balance there of we do have it really good, but now we almost have it too good where we have to become more mindful of our activity and nutrition choices where 20, 30 years ago, we didn't really have to because there wasn't a choice to. And so there's almost an onus on us now to be more aware of, as you said, our choices we're making on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. And I suppose we need to recognize as well, there's, there's nothing wrong with getting in the car and, you know, going for a drive or there's, there's nothing wrong with going out and having, you know, the odd um, burger, or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, most of our health uh, is impacted in a chronic way. It's, in, it's impacted by years and decades of certain kinds of lifestyle. And, and there's some there's some positive benefits from that. It means that we can relax and enjoy ourselves. A, a healthy and varied diet and a healthy and, and varied exercise pattern um, is is physiologically and psychologically the the uh, proven to be the, the healthiest. Um, we can enjoy ourselves at holiday periods, Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever it might be. We can um, you know chill a little bit more, not not take life uh, quite as serious as uh, as people might uh, impact. But also that we need to. Um, have certain lifestyle patterns in us from from a younger age. So, you know, impacting the health decisions of children and in particular teenagers um, can be very important in giving them the overall best chance of a a long and and healthy life over that long life. Um, So that if if we know that, um, you know, know, a diet that's, that's rich in vegetables you know, uh, fish uh, and some meat, not too many sweet things. They all treat every now and again. If we know that that's um, uh, the best um, diet from an overall health perspective, well then adapting to that. Likewise, with, with exercise, we all have days when we're ill or, you know, when we just don't get a chance. But if we can build in that we compensate from that and, and you know, get a bit of exercise in there, um, that, that perhaps, you know, between all of that, we can take best advantage of all of the knowledge and research that we've built up as well as having an enjoyable life where we don't feel under pressure all the time where uh, and you know it really distresses me sometimes to see people who have you know various eating disorders and i have no doubt and the research strongly points to this that the the, the discussion around diet and and you know clean eating etc has a huge collateral damage on, on on certain people and and particularly younger people and um, that the pressures around um uh, you know, certain kinds of lifestyle um, actually make people quite unhappy in themselves and, and really likes there to be enjoyed. Some people will be fortunate enough, if, uh, you know, to, to, to live longer lives and they can impact that to a certain extent with, with positive lifestyle choices. But some people, some people won't and, and life is there to be enjoyed. I think that's, that's ultimately the bottom line. I love that perspective of, you know, first of all, just giving people that foundation of of habits in physical activity and appropriate nutritional choices, but also having the flex, I mean, the flexibility is massive in terms of, as you said, overall quality of life and enjoyment. You know, at the end of the day, that extreme restriction, whether it's excessive exercise or really extreme, as you said, clean eating, uh, those type of choices, it's it's not long-term sustainable and it's it's not good for for mental health and again we kind of go back to the the instagram coaches and almost everyone is in their 20s and unless you're shredded you know whatever percent eight percent body fat you're not healthy and that is just dangerous information to be given out to the masses in a world where we are getting more influenced by social media we are it's it's a lot more appearance based and, and taking that back step and saying you know, you're getting your exercise in four or five times a week. You're eating good most of, the, you know, most of the week. You don't need to be five percent to be healthy. And in fact, that's that's almost driving the other side of the extreme, where it can become unhealthy when you're running the risk of eating disorders, of injuries from over exercise, all that type of stuff. Absolutely, and um, I I think you know it, it. There's a lot of guilt in our society, and a lot of. Um, 
rebellion against that guilt then as well. Uh, and uh, as I say, there is absolutely no evidence to show that unless you're, you know, a, a diabetic or whatever, it obviously is a, you know, particular metabolic disorder, but, you know, the odd um, bit of cake, the odd, you know, soda, whatever it might be, the odd one is not going to do you any harm. Certainly if you're drinking um, two or three liters of soda a day, you have a problem. Um, and it is going to impact your health, um, and, and most people will, will know it. Um, but you know, the odd treat, the, the the variety of life is a, is a very important aspect for people to understand. And sometimes people sort of forget about the the commonalities of people who actually live, um, you know, to, to great uh, great uh, lives and, and, and live long lives. Um, and there are other aspects in there. Community and and, uh, and having relationships with people is an absolutely vital aspect. And, and time and time again, studies have shown that people who are in uh, environments where they have good social networks and good integration of those networks, um, that they live longer um, than their peers. Um, people that have mental challenges and, and physical challenges um, that those uh, people also they you know they stave off the uh, impacts of things like dementia and so on, uh, and combined with the you know an active contributory lifestyle, um, those are the things that are are actually proven. But but nobody's going to get a book or a you know a TV show out of promoting those things, unfortunately. Obviously, as as head of research at the Irish Cancer Society, you've got a lot of uh, areas of interest. But what are some of the more in your opinion, some of the more important areas of inquiry moving forward to improve the state of cancer care in Ireland and kind of just get a global picture of what that looks like? Okay, so uh, Ireland, like like most Western countries, has seen significant improvements in, in cancer outcome. Um, today, as I sit here, um, on, uh, on average, um, well more than half of people diagnosed will be cured of, of, of their cancer, which is a big step up. In certain malignancies, breast, um, prostate, uh, testicular cancer, childhood leukemia, there have been enormous advances. Uh, in other areas, ovarian, pancreatic, lung cancer, um, we haven't done as well and the successes have been, have been more moderate. The challenges that we face are, are absolutely enormous and they're actually mind-boggling if you think of them. In Ireland, our cancer numbers are going to double within the next 25 years, so the number of cancer cases. And that isn't because there's some mad epidemic and because, you know, Wi-Fi is causing cancer or something like that. That's largely a reflection of um, our, the fact that our population is getting older. There's not as many young people in our population anymore. So we're living longer, so we're more likely to get cancer because it's, it's a disease of, of, of older people. Um, and uh, some lifestyle factors, and I don't think we've really accounted for the potential impact uh, that obesity is going to vest on certain types of cancer breast and endometrial, um, for example. Um, so we have, we have a, a big challenge in those areas um, to helping people recognize that, to try and, uh, and build up. Um, in most countries now, cancer services are hanging on by their fingernails, and certainly Ireland is no better. We have some incredibly talented, gifted um, researchers, clinicians, nurses, doctors, um, diagnosticians, dietitians, um, uh, nutritionists, etc., in this country, um, and so we need to build up the networks of those people to help impact um, patient outcome. But we frank frankly face a challenge because of the numbers and the cost. People's jobs cost money. If our health service is only barely hanging in um, at the minute and, and you know doing its best and, and giving a good standard of care, but you know we've got things like waiting lists, etc. What's it going to be like? If we see a doubling of cancer instances of cancer numbers, uh, along with increases in all of the other diseases of, of people as they get older, dementia, cardiovascular disease, uh, etc. So um, we, we have a numeric challenge. Um, I, I guess that, that's one of the biggest things. Along with that is what I would call a pharmacoeconomic challenge. Um, so pharmacoeconomics is a relatively new aspect of science looking at the, the value of medicines and the value of different treatment approaches. And again, we've made some incredible advances, um, but those advances come at a very significant cost. And we as a society are going to have to sit down and work out what we're willing to pay for. It may involve changes in taxation. It may involve collective bargaining. 
Uh, it may involve different kinds of incentives for research to encourage research in areas that we know um, impact health in, in a bigger way than you know necessarily focusing on a, a very narrow um, specific disease that's going to impact drugs. I guess that's that's probably the most direct and most talked about um, aspect, but it will conversely impact our decisions in other areas. So, for example, um, we got, we're going to have to decide um, how much we put into lifestyle advice and lifestyle guidance. If we know that, um, say, one in five uh, of all cancers is associated with smoking, um, but we've got a drug um, that costs 100, 200,000 euro per year, um, we have to decide, do we focus our energy and our effort on prevention, on community treatment and, and, and so on. Um, and that, that is going to be a, um, a, a, difficult, uh, a difficult challenge for us. There are lots of emerging opportunities with technology, um, but I genuinely fear that we're going to see a, a, a significant social divide and an increase in the social divide um, in, in cancer and in other diseases, because if these, um, if, if, technology and access technology costs money, if access to appropriate information costs money, well then the wealthy uh, uh, and people who are, you know, are, are either born wealthy or acquire wealth, they're going to get looked after and they're going to live a lot longer um, than people who don't have access to wealth and, and don't have access to these things. So to, to my mind, the um, these are big areas. Some of the uh, other areas would include the fact that we now know um, some big ways to improve um, health outcome, but actually we're not necessarily managing to deliver on those because we've got a very medical view of health. Uh, and I've heard other people talk about, you know, um, doctors focusing on, focusing on disease rather than on health. So there's um, some low-hanging fruit in how we could um, greatly improve uh, our longevity, how long we live, and also the health that we enjoy over that longevity. Because it's not a whole lot of fun if you, you know, live to be 200, but you know, you spend 150 years bedridden, um, yeah. you know, because of some some disease. Um, really, uh, the the great advance is living a healthy life of being able to enjoy and engage and you know be part of the community. So um, we know that there's no hanging fruit there in terms of. Um, diet and exercise in, in helping people uh, reduce the risk of developing cancer in the first place. Um, proper dietary advice and exercise advice during cancer seems to significantly reduce the chances during treatment uh, of, uh, of a, a poor outcome. And we know uh, from UK research that around one in four of all cancer patients are left in some way disabled after their treatment. And many of those cases, those um, people don't have to be um, disabled if the right intervention is built in. But it's it's kind of difficult in a situation in a um, a kind of a, a medicalized situation where you know we, we focus on drug therapy alone. Um, it's difficult to build all of those in into the journey for for best of health. So I think um, a lot of our direction in the future will be in integrating all of these things in an individualized manner. So to me, personalized medicine and personalized cancer treatment isn't just about getting the necessarily the right drug or the right diagnostic. It's around getting the right advice, getting the right guidance, the right supports to be able to attain whatever is the best of health that you might be able to achieve given your own kind of circumstances. That might be in you know, prevention advice, uh, it might be in, in early detection advice, treatment advice, and, and, and in survivorship advice. So to, to my mind, to, to summarize, I think the challenges, we have enormous economic and, and, and numerical challenges in the next decades, unbelievable challenges in our healthcare that are really going to um, make society ask some very, very difficult questions of itself. But we also have some tremendous opportunities within there to reasonably cost effectively better impact um, outcome um, by integrating you know, all of this information, all of this advice, all of this guidance, along with good medicines, along with good diet and exercise um, to, to have best impact. There's certainly a lot of difficult decisions ahead, but you kind of just alluded to there's a lot of potential for that integrative approach. And I'm seeing more than ever more and more people calling for that. So hopefully that's that's a kind of shining light that somewhere down the road we'll make some some inroads in that area and really get closer to 
to personalise medicine. Uh, but listen, Robert, I, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I know we're coming up on an hour, so I won't keep you too much longer. Um, so people are looking to find out about the Irish Cancer Society or, or just kind of follow you and hear more about what you're up to and <laughs> and follow your myth-busting quest. Uh, where can they find you? Sure. So the Cancer Society has a very good web presence, which will be uh, improving over the coming year. Cancer.ie gives a lot of uh, detailed information. Um, as part of that, we will be improving our research website to provide better resources there. So that will be cancer.ie forward slash research. Um, I do a little bit of social media when I can, when I can fit it into the day. So uh, it's only on Twitter. So uh, Dr. Robert O'Connor is uh, is my uh, Twitter handle, D-R-R-O-B-E-R-T-O-C-O-N-N-O-R. If people follow you and if they found you, um, they probably have a, a link out um, to, to, to that uh, as well. In Ireland, uh, as I said, I do feel that, that communications is very important. So we kicked off a program a year ago um, which we call decoding cancer, and what that sees is that we we engage um, with the general public. We bring experts in to talk in certain areas. I've done one or two of the talks, but in general, they're international experts or local experts in particular aspect. We've had some great talks on exercise, for example, or in care and treatment in certain forms of blood cancer. Um, we'll have a talk in the next uh, on Thursday. This well, actually, I'm not sure when the show will be cast, but in, in August we'll probably, by the time this goes out, have had a talk around treatment advances in uh, skin cancer. So uh, you know, people can catch up on, on the web. They can catch up through Twitter, or they can just come along to our uh, our presentations on the Decoding Cancer series. We try and put those out on the Irish Cancer Society Facebook um, page. There are some technical reasons why sometimes that doesn't work to our satisfaction, but we like to get out there uh, as best as we can. So if we have a talk, we'll generally try and put it up through Facebook Live on the Irish Cancer Society Facebook page. So it will be live streamed, but it will also be there as a recording for people to, to see and, and look at it there in, the, in their own time. That's very cool. Is that And that's free for the public? Absolutely. We're, our organisation is completely funded by the public. Uh, I'm a, an investor on behalf of the public, so we absolutely have to make all of our resources available and accessible for the public. That That's part of, of, of our raison d'etre, really. That's brilliant, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes because I think that's a really cool one, and and talk about you know high quality information that's that's easily attainable. I'll definitely uh, do my best to push that in terms of the Facebook page and and all the events you've got going on. Yeah, they're they're great opportunities for us. I mean, we we recently did one on on diet and cancer because uh, as you know and you've spoken about yourself, there's an enormous amount of quackery and that in this area. We had about ninety people uh, in the in the room, but I looked it up. Uh, on Facebook uh, uh, recently and there'd been about nine and a half thousand uh, views of the video. So these can be great opportunities for people in different parts of the world um, who are interested and, you know, can spend a little bit more time then in, in looking through past the soundbite into maybe trying to reassure themselves or trying to get accurate information because, as I said at the outset, in most cases these things can't be explained in a single soundbite or a single piece of information. They actually take quite a while to build up the evidence that, that you know that you really need to make lifestyle changes that's a, a great point to finish on and i'll kind of echo that and <laughs> i implore people listening to to take a critical mind or take a critical viewpoint to the information you see in your facebook feeds in your twitter who is giving you that information where is it coming from don't just take it at sort face value and if you can follow things like decoding cancer follow things like this podcast and 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 consume that information in a way that you're educating yourself and not just not just biting on the latest kind of flashpoint um but listen robert again i can't thank you enough for your time i thought it was a really interesting chat for me and uh hopefully we'll look forward to your instagram account and the new shirt of selfie soon (laughs) Uh, yeah i I, uh i'm i'm banned from from instagram for various types of ties that i am that I wear, so uh, it may need to be a little bit, little bit more uh, cautious there. But listen, I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, thanks to uh, anybody who's managed to listen all the way through to my, my mad ramblings about how we might improve our health. So that's it for another episode, folks. Again, a huge thanks to Rob for sitting down and chatting to us about the Irish Cancer Society, the work they do, and how to sift through the information on the internet and find reputable sources of information. So again, if you're looking for more information, jump on to www.cancer.ie. You can follow Robert on Twitter, as he said in the show, or of course, 
try and look into that decoding cancer. It's a great resource of, again, evidence-based information on these cancer myths, on survivorship, and everything and anything got to do with cancer. A really great resource for the public. So that's it again, folks. Thanks for listening in, and we'll catch you next week.